In the late 1940s and well into the 1950s, Chicago was plagued by fires that had one key thing in common. They all took place at often unsafe, downtrodden hotels, injuring and even killing those who were already down on their luck. This is the story of Chicago's Skid Row Flophouse Fires. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals with the loss of life due to fires. Listener discretion is advised. Most major U.S. cities at one time in their history had an area referred to as Skid Row, populated by, but not limited to, men who suffered from addiction, alcoholism, housing insecurities, joblessness, and or mental health issues. Although it may be hard to believe, for Chicago up until the 1970s, Skid Row was primarily on Madison Street, just west of the river. This area is now called West Town, filled with giant glass high-rises, upscale stores and restaurants, and is close to not only the new McDonald's campus, but also Google's headquarters. The areas in which these men would congregate usually had inexpensive hotels called SROs, single room occupancy, to keep those of the area off the streets. In the mid-20th century, these SRO hotels charged 50 cents to a dollar, about $5 to $10 in today's money, for guests to flop in small grimy rooms without many comforts. Now, when I say small, one of the hotels we're discussing today offered chicken wire cubicles, four foot by six foot rooms separated by corrugated metal sheets with seven foot high ceilings of wire mesh, often called chicken wire. For reference, the original cells at Joliet Prison were four feet by seven feet, one foot longer with seven foot ceilings, but those ceilings were not made of chicken wire. Rarely did these buildings have any type of sprinkler systems, fire doors, fire alarms, even basic smoke detectors. Combine those issues with shoddy wiring and overcrowding, it is no wonder things went tragically wrong more than once. In January of 1945, a fire started at the 40-year-old General Clark Hotel at 217 North Clark Street in the Loop, one that quickly spread due to an open stairwell. Fourteen people died in that fire, in part because the alarm was delayed for five minutes, as the employee who first saw the fire did not know how to operate the fire alarm box. A city council subcommittee was appointed within the week voting to crack down on proprietors of hotels and lodging houses who disregard city fire codes. There was also a plea by both the building commissioner and fire protection bureau for more inspectors. John Fenn, the chief of the fire protection bureau, said at the hearing that his team was undermanned and that the general hotel hadn't been inspected in five years. Plans are also put in place to better educate hotel employees on how to use the fire alarms. A little more background on Skid Row in Chicago in the late 1940s comes courtesy of a Time magazine article from August 29, 1949. Reading from the article, 
Along West Madison Street, within sight of the handsome daily news skyscraper, sprawls the noisome slum of saloons, hash joints, missions, and flop houses that Chicago calls Skid Row. One morning last June, as he picked his way to work through Skid Row's reeking garbage and broken bottles and stepped past the bodies of sleeping derelicts on the sidewalks, Daily News managing editor Everett C. Norlander felt his stomach turn over. His next reaction was that he was walking through a good story. The Time Magazine story goes on to explain that Norlander found two rewrite men for the paper, both World War II vets, and asked if they'd, quote, like to be bums for a while, end quote. The two writers spent 14 days among the living dead, as they were referred to in the paper, and in a 12-part series described the worst of the 82 squalid saloons in three-quarters of a Madison Street mile. Explained most of them sold the morning special, which was a double shot of whiskey for 18 cents. That's right around $2.10 in today's money. Took the readers on a guided tour of 46 flop houses, quote, where 12,413 bums slept in lousy cubicles for 50 to 60 cents a night, end quote and listed the names and addresses of bar owners who were breaking state liquor and health laws and shined a light on the area police referred to as couldn't-care-less cops. Circulation of the Chicago Daily News, which had hovered around slightly more than 514,000, jumped by as many as 20,000 copies. With this much negative publicity, Police and health officials quickly took action, shutting down 56 saloons and restaurants named in the Daily News series until they complied with the laws. During the first three days of the cleanup campaign, five plainclothes policemen assigned to Skid Row arrested 40 disorderlies, as they were referred to in local papers. Other than mention of the two reporters having to deal with bedbugs at one of the Madison Street hotels, little was mentioned about efforts made to correct the conditions at the Skid Row flop houses. City officials said at the time that Chicago's efforts simply forced the forgotten men to move to other towns. Detroit, for one, reported an increase of drifters after the Chicago cleanup campaign went into effect. Even Des Moines, Iowa, said they, quote, waged a constant fight to prevent a skid row from developing, end quote. On March 20th, 1953, a fire broke out at the four-story, 60-year-old Chestnut Hotel at 119 West Chestnut Street near Rush Street. This hotel, while two miles from Madison Street's Skid Row, had many similarities, including cheap rooms. Of the 125 residents at the Chestnut, six people were killed and nine were sent to the hospital. Among the dead were a 30-year-old woman and her infant daughter. One man broke his hip and two men broke their legs, jumping from the third floor to escape the flames. A 49-year-old woman named Noreen Reynolds was in critical condition with third-degree burns over her entire body. 
Less than seven months later, on October 11, 1953, the Boston Hotel at 844 West Madison Street was one of three adjoining buildings that burned, killing four. Among the dead there was a 73-year-old man found on the third floor and a 15-year-old girl found elsewhere in the hotel. A 65-year-old man living on the third floor was awakened by flames. He claimed he ran to the front area of the third floor, only to find the glass door leading to the outside fire escape was padlocked. He was able to smash the glass with a chair and reach safety. Police Commissioner Corrigan inspected the structures after the fires were extinguished and found them in good condition with no violations of code. No mention of the padlocked door leading to the fire escape. The surprising thing about this story is that it seemingly received little attention in the press, barely rating a brief mention buried deep in the few papers that even ran the story. Two months and less than a mile away, another fire broke out, this one on Madison Street's Skid Row. If the fire at the Boston Hotel did not receive much attention, the one on this night certainly did, as some of the victims of the fire weren't just transients and those down on their luck, they were those sent to battle the blaze. On December 17, 1953, an early morning fire swept through the three-story, 45-room Reliance Hotel at 1702 West Madison, which counted 75 occupants. Herbert Murray, the night clerk at the hotel, ran through the hotel, pounding on doors to alert the occupants of the danger. Murray was credited with saving the lives of many of the hotel's guests. Civilian deaths were limited to one, a man named John Tybor, who recently had been released from Mantino State Mental Hospital. It was quickly announced that a note was found on Tybor's body that read, I am really crazy. I killed 15 people. I also set fire to 12 apartment buildings. While the fire was brought under control within two hours, five firefighters battling the blaze at the Reliant Hotel lost their lives when the two upper floors and a wall collapsed, trapping the men under rubble. 24 firefighters were also injured, and a dozen or so other firefighters were trapped under the fallen building but were rescued. One firefighter named John Meisner was trapped under debris for eight hours during that brutally cold night before being pulled to safety. The brother and sister of John Tybor, the recently released Mantino Hospital patient, testified the handwriting on the note found on their brother's body was not in the dead man's handwriting. Handwriting experts agreed. By January of 1954, the coroner's jury announced their findings. John Tybor was not responsible for the fire and that it was, quote, impossible to determine whether this occurrence was accidental or otherwise, end quote. Anthony J. Mullaney, the assistant fire commissioner, stated, quote, the building was ready to collapse, fire or no fire, end quote. It was also revealed there were unapproved alterations being made to the building, which made it unsafe, including the removal of the center-bearing wall on the ground floor and the installation of a mezzanine in the back of the building. There was a call for closer fire inspections of old buildings in order to prevent another tragedy like the one that destroyed the Reliance Hotel. 
Either city officials did not act on that suggestion or those expected to do so did not, as these fires continued. Chicago's Flophouse fires were even more frequent and deadly in 1955. At about 2 a.m. on February 12th of that year, a building at 644 West Madison Street became the next location in a series of fatal fires. On the ground floor of the building was a store equipment company called Standard Store Fixtures. Above that, a four-story hotel called the Barton The Barton Hotel was comprised of 336 rooms, really just sleeping areas, measuring 4 feet by 6 feet. At the top of the 7-foot walls were chicken wire ceilings. According to reports, 245 men were staying at the hotel that night, each having paid 65 cents, slightly less than $7 in today's money, to avoid Chicago's bitter cold and other dangers of life on Skid Row. According to Anthony Dykes, the hotel's night manager, he was sitting by a radiator on the second floor of the building trying to stay warm on this frigid Chicago night when he heard noise in the hallway. He leaned his head out to see a horrifying sight, a man engulfed in flames running down the hallway, igniting portions of the hall as he ran. The room he presumably came from was already ablaze. It would later be determined that the resident, Joseph Armitage, whose age ranged from 55 to 70, depending on the source, used rubbing alcohol on his skin to massage his legs. Somehow a lit cigarette was present and fell into the highly flammable liquid, turning him into a human torch. Hotel night manager Dykes claims he pulled a fire alarm in the hotel office and set to alerting the residents of the building of the impending danger, before the smoke and heat forced him to get out of the building himself. Many residents were unable to escape their rooms and were overcome by smoke before the flames could take them. The fortunate ones were able to make their way down the icy fire escapes. Some had to break windows and jump to the pavement below, risking injury or worse. Firemen battled the flames and bone-chilling cold, but even with their Herculean efforts, 29 people died. In the Chicago Tribune the next day, police acknowledged that many who died were burned beyond recognition and, quote, because many were derelicts without family interests, it is unlikely they will ever be identified, end quote. Three days later, building inspectors investigated conditions at seven transient hotels on West Madison and on Clark Street. Unsurprisingly, some of the hotels assessed were found with various violations. At the Elk Hotel at 435 North Clark, inspectors found substandard room partitions, fire escapes either blocked or in disrepair, and toilets with combustible partitions. Within the week, the truth about the Barton Hotel fire began to come out. The fire had raged for a full 30 minutes before the alarm at the firebox at the corner of Desplaines and Madison Street was pulled at 1.59 a.m. Assistant Fire Commissioner Anthony J. Mullaney testified at an inquest at the county morgue that, quote, men were crowding the fire escapes and the fire already had burned through the second floor when firemen were called. Testimony was given that one or two fires occurred weekly 
at the Barton Hotel, often put out by employees. The last time firemen were summoned there was November 10, 1954, just three months before this fire. Mullaney stated, quote, This is a definite violation of a city ordinance which requires that the fire department be summoned for every fire in a hotel, regardless of the size of the fire, end quote. Chicago coroner Walter E. McCarran selected a blue-ribbon jury to study the cause of the fire and ways to avoid similar disasters. During one demonstration for the jurors, a blowtorch was used on a section of the corrugated iron sheeting from the hotel to show the paint used on the metal was fire-resistant. The jurors then visited the Legion Hotel at 20 South Desplaines Street, described as a fireproof structure built in 1928 for transients, and watched as Mullaney set fire to a mattress soaked with a highly flammable insecticide. Newspaper photographers and TV cameramen recorded it all. The coroner's jury later found five people connected to the hotel's operation negligent for not reporting the fire promptly, a violation of city code. Coroner Walter E. McCarran issued warrants for those same five people, charging them with involuntary manslaughter. Just two and a half months later, on April 28, 1955, the deaths of seven occupants and two firefighters were attributed to a blaze at the Green Mill Hotel, at 518 North Green Street. This transient hotel was less than a mile and a half from Barton Hotel. This older brick building did not have many fire safety features, and when the fire started just after midnight, it spread quickly. Among the 85 residents were women and children. During the rescue efforts, the stairway between the second and third floor collapsed while two firefighters from Engine Company 42 were standing on it. One of those firefighters, 44-year-old Captain Edward Duller, died in the fall. A 60-year-old fire marshal named James R. Hughes suffered a heart attack while directing his men in fighting the 411 alarm fire at the Green Mill and died a week and a half later. A World War I Navy veteran, Hughes had been part of the Chicago Fire Department for 34 years and came from a family of firefighters. The shocking run of Flophouse fires continued on May 6, 1955, just eight days after the Green Mill Fire. The Comfort Hotel at 919 West Madison Street was thought to have been started by someone who fell asleep while smoking in bed. This fire had the distinction of having hotel guests who were so intoxicated they fought with their would-be rescuers, the firemen. Nine died in this fire, with 12 residents and one fireman hurt. That July, first-term Mayor Richard J. Daly pushed for the enactment of an ordinance requiring the installation of sprinkler systems in cubicle-type hotels that would become effective January 1, 1956. Owners of 51 hotels were served with notices to present their plans for sprinkler systems to the fire department for approval. None of the hotels complied, even with the threat of a penalty for not complying with the ordinance of $200 per day. That's more than $2,000 in today's money. 
While sprinklers would undoubtedly save lives, getting them installed would also be cost prohibitive for most of these hotels. It seems pretty obvious to most. Daly knew this and expected he'd be able to rid the city of these chicken wire cubicle hotels. October 19, 1955 saw the final deadly hotel fire on Madison Street Skid Row that year when two men were killed and 10 others including two firemen, were injured at the 84-room Adams Hotel, 1008 Madison Street. One man was identified by a rent receipt. The other was burned beyond recognition. The newspapers were quick to point out that this was not a chicken coop hotel, as the rooms had plastered walls and were large enough to be shared by two or three men. Little by little, these flophouse hotels began to disappear through construction around the city and gentrification of the area. Still, in 1981, more than 35 years after the spate of flophouse fires, the Royal Beach Hotel at 5523 North Kenmore in the then-arson-plagued neighborhood of Chicago's Uptown burned. 19 died and 14 were injured. In 1993, the 60-year-old four-story Paxton Hotel at 1438 North LaSalle in Chicago's Old Town burned. Fortunately, the Chicago Fire Department responded quickly, saving an estimated 70 lives. Sadly, the death toll from that fire was 20. There are very few single-room occupancy hotels left around Chicago, and fortunately, those that remain I watch closely and have better fire prevention systems available than those of the past. The only SRO fire in Chicago I found in the last 20 years occurred at the JR Plaza Hotel on the city's west side in 2014. Three people suffered from smoke inhalation, and one woman was hurt jumping from a third floor window, but no fatalities occurred. For listening to today's episode about Chicago's Skid Row Flophouse Fires. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various books and items related to this episode's subject if you'd like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, pal. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. And we'll be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.